I mean, hasn't the Bible been changed over and over through all the years? Isn't it full of legends, made up stories about people that never really existed, of events that never really happened? I mean, isn't it just a fairy tale? Well, think again. As our archaeological father, as you, you might be able to call him, Rabbi Dr. Nelson Gluick, he said this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. So through archaeology, the Bible has been confirmed to be one of the most reliable works of history. Welcome back to the Andrew Roman Show, man. I'm so happy that you've tuned in. Hey, remember, if you're new to the show, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for watching on YouTube and podcasts. And remember, we have over 100 episodes for you to enjoy. And really, my goal is to approach topics from a faith, culture, relationships, philosophy, and more recently, even science from a Christian perspective. I believe that following Jesus is relevant and life-changing. I want to be able to answer life's most pressing questions in the way that makes sense and has a like a real effect in my life and those around me. So whether those questions be about meaning, morality, identity, relationships, origin, destiny, where do we come from, where are we going, that's all what the show is about. Last week, we dove into the world of science, exploring the newest scientific facts about the fine-tuning of our universe and our Earth, looking at odds so improbable that it would have been, what well, would it take more faith, I would say, to believe that chance was responsible for the beginning of the universe. If you haven't watched that, you will be blown away. I really recommend it. And it also was really cool to see the response from some of the reels I made from the episode, some of them even getting more than 10,000 views. So pretty dope. Well, today we aren't slowing down. In this episode, we'll talk about seven discoveries that prove that the Bible is not a fairy tale. This episode is crucial because it's still a very prominent thought that the Bible is full of made-up stories. Or even if it was telling the truth in some cases, it's just been changed over and over again, right? So many translations, so many changes, that we just don't have anything like the original anymore. Even Joe Rogan mentioned at some point that the whole thing was made up and changed by some priest and bishop. Like, wasn't the New Testament made up by Constantine, written hundreds of years after the actual events? I mean, think about it. You're talking about a guy walking on water, multiplying fish, the Old Testament. I mean, after all, we're talking about a flood, a, a guy living for three days in the belly of the well. I mean, come on, are we supposed to keep to really, you know, take that seriously? Isn't it full of contradictions and inconsistencies? So many of these questions and accusations that I brought up obviously deserve their own episode. But today we're going to address one common misconception, that the Bible isn't historically reliable. It was a pervasive thought in the 19th and 20th century that the Bible was full of made-up people, that the events were just fairy tales, that the events never happened. It was no different than other books of mythologies, myths, and legends. And if you grew up in the church, you really took the historical accuracy of the Bible for granted, right? I mean, you thought David and Goliath were like, obviously, they're real people. I learned about them in church. You know, Abraham, the Israelites, it's all real. Well, I have good news for you. You're not crazy. They are real, but the question is how to prove it. Because one of the best ways to prove something is through corroborating evidence. Meaning, is there anything outside the Bible that confirms what's inside the Bible? Like any ancient text or story, whether it be the mil military victories of Alexander the Great, learning about the ancient Greeks, Assyria, Babylon, etc., we've been able to confirm their validity through various ancient historians, and most notably through something called archaeology. 
So archaeology is a study of human history and prehistory through the excavation of like sites and analysis of artifacts and other physical remains. Biblical archaeology began in the 19th century, but really didn't become a serious discipline until the later half of that century. So remember, 19th century is right, the 1800s, basically. Since then, there have been so many discoveries that corroborate the biblical text. In fact, Rabbi Dr. Nelson Gluick, one of the most respected men of his century, and by the way, when I say most respected, he was close to many Israeli statements, uh, states, men, including David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, uh, who else, Abba Ibn, and for like 24 years, he was president of the Hebrew Union College. In 1961, he delivered the benediction of President Jenneth Kennedy's inauguration. In 1963, he was featured on the cover of Time. So yeah. I would say he's a pretty important dude, just personally. That's what I would say. Well, Rabbi Gluick was was one of the most famous and pioneering the work in the field of biblical archaeology. And this is what he says. So now that we know who we're talking about, this is what he says. It may be stated that categorically no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made with which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. This is about to blow your mind. By the way, all of this info is really credited to Eric Metaxas, who compiled it in his latest book, Is Atheism Dead? Like we said in the last episode, talking about scientific discoveries of our universe, this will either strengthen your faith in God and trust in the Bible, or shake your skepticism, skepticism, can I even say that word? Skepticism of God in the Bible. This episode is not just for the Bible nerds like me. I'm really doing this because I take my faith seriously, and I think so should you. You and I don't have time to believe in fairy tales. So, let's get into it. It's going to be a long one, but it's going to be well worth the wait. So, definitely pay attention. Discovery number one. As early as as the 19th century, there was at least some evidence from nearly every major people group and empire, from the Babylonians to the Persians. I mean, the ancient writers had accounted for all of them and for many others too, I didn't mention. Yet there was no extra biblical evidence for a significant people mentioned in the Bible, the Hittites. Now, the Hittites weren't some small tribe, someone you know barely mentioned like the Nephilim. No, 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 the Hittites are mentioned 46 times in the Bible. We first hear about them in the time of Abraham in Genesis 23, when Abraham purchased what is known as the Cave of the Patriarchs from a Hittite named Ephron. And we continue to hear about them hundreds of years later in Deuteronomy as one of those occupying the land of Canaan. Fast forward to the time of David, the Hittites, they're still there. Bathsheba's husband was Uriah the Hittite. So the Bible portrays them as a vast empire with tremendous power, you know, stretching through the centuries. So where had they gone? I mean, why was there no trace of them anywhere, even in ancient literature? For scholars of the 19th century, the Hittites became Exhibit A in the case against the historical accuracy of the Bible. The puzzle of this mysterious people began to form as early as 1809. Now, when the Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Birchert, okay, to be honest, I don't really know if I said his name right, but I'm going to try it again. Explorer Johann Ludwig Birchert, And by the way, he, he actually took on uh, uh, um, a Muslim name, which is way more complicated. So I'm going to butcher that. So let's just call him Johan, right? Let's just call him Johnny. So Johnny over here was visiting Syria in search of an ancient city called Petra. 
in that journey, he was actually traveling through northern Syria in the city of Hamath, where he noticed some black basalt stones in the foundation of a building. Now, on them was an inscription on a strange-looking language. Now, he only writes about this in his journal, which was published five years after his death. He writes, quote, in the corner of a house, wait, he was Swiss, right? So I feel, I don't know what's a Swiss accent. I feel like it, maybe it's almost like German, maybe? Like it's um, like a German accent, you know? In the corner of a house, in the bazaar is a stone with a number of small figures in signs which appear to be a kind of hieroglyphic writing, though it does not resemble that of Egypt. How is that? Hey, if you're Swiss, I'm so sorry. I just like tr- trying to do accents, so I apologize. But he wrote in his journal, this discovery, though, was lost another 50 years and no one found out about it. Meanwhile, in 1834, another explorer, <clears throat> this time it was a French one, discovered another piece of the light, uh, another piece of the puzzle, I should say. So this French explorer, Charles Tixier, was wandering northward through Turkey in search of the ruins of a lost city called Tavium. It was a Roman city. When he arrived at a village of Bogokois, he inquired with the locals about any ancient ruins they might have seen. And they took him to some hills overlooking the village, and Tixier was outstanding to behold the remnants of a civilization that did not look Roman and was much older. Now, there were several colossal fortifications with stones of extraordinary size. Then there was another monumental wall, then the gate on which he saw a larger-than-life helmeted figure holding an axe. Another mile down, another gate. He discovered an ancient city that would have been larger than ancient Athens. Imagine that. A year later, a British diplomat by the name of William Hamilton discovered a second ancient site only 12 miles north. At this point, the news had broken out. Something was definitely going on in Turkey. George Perot, another discoverer, discovered what others had missed previously. It was a long inscription stretching 25 feet across, carved into the face of the rock. So many archaeological discoveries so far, yet no one had any idea who the civilization was. It wasn't until an Irish missionary, William Wright, when he enters the picture, that the identity is discovered. As he researched all the evidence so far, right, the black basalt stones, these inscriptions, these walls, these these statues, these gates, as he realizes, wait a second, this is all lining up with the biblical account of the Hittites. Huh. Now, of course, you might say, well, that was, he was missionary, right? He's biased. He's Christian. Well, of course, we're not just taking his word for it. The puzzle begins to take its forms in the years of 1870. We're talking about 1870. Remember the black basalt stones? Those weren't until 18, since 1806. So almost 70 years here, and we're just making progress. In 1870 is when, whenever people were able to get what's called squeezes, which their paper mache impressions were made of those black basalt stones that were discovered back in 1806 in northern Syria. And they also found similar inscriptions all the way to Izmir in western Turkey. So through the work of linguist experts like Henry Sace and Hugo Winkler, and by the way, when I say language experts, I mean these guys, one of, the, one of these guys could read Latin and ancient Greek before he was 12. Brett, what were you doing before you were 12? I was still picking my nose, bro. I was eating my boogers at 12. I, by the way, I was not, okay? In my defense, I really was not eating my boogers at, by the age of 12. But I definitely was not reading ancient Greek and ancient um, Latin, okay? I was not doing that. 
Well, these guys cracked the first code of this language, and with it became known as Luwian, the ancient language of the Hittites. Now, again, this, this takes a whole scholarly consensus to even agree on, but they did. In the decades after, even more evidence emerged to substantiate the claim that these were the Hittites, and they're still even emerging now. The ancient city that was discovered in northern Turkey, do you remember that, with the huge uh, person with the axe? It's called Hattusa, the capital of the Hittite kingdom. Or I would say it really sounds like the, you know, the house of Jabba the Hutt. Come on, Hattusa, the Hutta? Man, that was going to be real ugly. If you're watching right now, I was just trying to be like Jabba the Hutt for a second. But then I realized that's probably really bad imaging. Yeah, that, that, got, that probably got really nasty, me trying to look like Jabba the Hutt. But hey, that's what it was called, Hattusa the capital of the Hittite kingdom. And the long inscription that was found was actually a list of Hittite kings who had dealings with the Egyptians. It is now the consensus of scholars, both secular and Christian, that that Irish missionary was right. If it wouldn't have been for that old document called the Bible, history never would have had the honor of discovering the Hittites. Discovery number two. In the 1800s, it was really just a groundbreaking time uh, for the world, like improving to the world that the Bible wasn't a fairy tale. So many of these things that I'm going to talk about was, in fact, all happened during the 1800s. Well, similarly, Sir Austin Henry Layard, and all these names are so hard to be honest with you, so I'm sorry if I butcher these, is one, of, is one person to thank for this next discovery. Unlike some discoveries that are unveiled by happenstance, you might say, where someone just happens to find it, i.e., you know, the Swiss explorer Johnny that found the black basalt stones just trying to find the city of Petra, this was, was not the case with what is known today as a black obelisk. In December of 1846, during the cold desert nights in Mosul, Iraq, Sir Austin's team were really just about to call it quits. Isn't that interesting? Like right when you're about to call it quits, you're, you might just be in the, you know, in the verge of your greatest discovery. Now, luckily, he was able to convince his team to, hey, guys, let's just dig one more day, not even knowing that he was about to discover a more groundbreaking connection to the Bible. A workman's tool struck something hard. Remember, they hadn't found anything, but finally they struck something hard. And after a few minutes of digging it, it showed to be an outstanding black kind of limestone steel of some sort. It was kind of like an obelisk, topped in the form of a ziggurat and decorated on all sides and all four sides with five registers of astonishingly well-preserved relief sculptures. I know, this was quite the description. You can Google all this to see it yourself. It dated from the 9th century BC. So by the 9th century, we're talking about like 800 BC. And it pictured the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, who had reigned from 858 to 824 BC. So we're talking about a long, long time ago. Now, the images showed two kings prostrating themselves before this King Shalmaneser, along with the gifts of gold, even exotic animals like water buffaloes and rhinoceros. And the engraving were in what's called the Akkadian cuneiform. I know, man. Bro, I had to learn all these terms for this episode. So if you don't get it, that's fine, because I don't either. But cuneiform, sorry, I, mis- I mispronounced it. Cuneiform was kind of um, engravings, right? So this is what it was written in old cuneiform, which was just being deciphered at the moment in in the 1860s. So it's written in this old ancient Akkadian cuneiform, which just being discovered at that moment. And it took two long years for that black obelisk to make it back to the British Museum after it was discovered. But once it did, it 
was hailed as the most notable trophy in the world. And it wasn't until 1851 when the, and I'm going to say this right, is the Assyriologist, I believe, right? It's an expert in, in, you know, Assyrian things. So the Assyriologist of top rank, Edward Hicks, visited the museum that the final revelation came about what this object was. As he stood there observing the obelisk, he started to read one of the engravings. I mean, small flex, right? Here's this ancient, you know, piece of stone from 800-something B.C., and you're just a casual Edward Hicks just like reading it like if it was English. Small flex, but okay. And as he read it, this is actually what one of the engravings said. It said, quote, I received the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri, silver gold in a golden bowl, a golden vase with, with pointed bottom, golden tumblers, and golden buck, and a tiny staff for a king. Being an expert in biblical history, Hanks understood, wait a second, Jehu's the son of Omri? He understood that the monarch bowing and paying tribute to Shalmaneser was none other than the Hebrew king Jehu from the Bible. This 1851 discovery of a biblical king in an Assyrian steel from the 9th century BC struck a thunderous blow against all those inclined to dismiss the Bible as ahistorical or even mythical. As like no different than the fanciful epics of Gilgamesh and Homer's accounts of, of Cyclops. Yet another fact accepted by all scholars, secular and Christian. Pretty amazing stuff. The more you think about it, the more it blows your mind. Discovery number three. Numero tres. Numero tres. Dry numa. Yeah, try. Here we go. Discovery number three. In the summer of 1868, Anglican medical missionary Frederick Klein, who had just settled in Jerusalem, rode across the Jordan River and went, I think it was eastward. Yeah, he went eastward towards what had been a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago, Moabite territory. Now, he had a close friend with him, Fanny Afayez, and they visited some locals who guided them to an ancient stone of theirs. Quick pause. This is where I love the Middle East. I mean, you ain't got this type of history in some places in the U.S. I mean, you can go a long time ago with Native Americans. But it's like, oh, no no big deal. Just guided them, you know, to some ancient stone of theirs. The most ancient thing I got here is probably, you know, I should throw away that banana peel now that I think about it. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I did throw it away a long, long time ago. So these locals guide them to an ancient stone of theirs. It was another black basalt steel, about three feet in height and about two feet wide. It was obviously of remarkable antiquity. And what was most interesting, though, is it bore 34 lines of what looked much like Hebrew. Now, Frederick couldn't, couldn't really read it, and he knew that he had found an archaeological treasure, however. On the spot, he negotiated to buy it from them. They all agreed on 100 Napoleons. I had no idea that Napoleons were even the currency back then, but that equates to about $400, which was a lot of money back then. The problem was that Frederick didn't have any money with them. How many of us? And yes, credit cards weren't invented at that, at that time. He had just been slapping that credit card on that stone. Da, 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 da. I need to buy this right now. But he didn't have any money. And he had to actually go to the German government who was sponsoring his trip to get some, get some funding for this thing. Now he left and each, each person gave their word saying, okay, we have you know settled on 100 Napoleons. But of course, you feel the plot twist coming. When he returned, somehow the word had gotten out that these locals now held some type of treasure, and they even had more possible clients. So they upped their price tenfold. 
after magically negotiating them back to 120 Napoleons, at least it was close enough, more problems arose. Now, the neighboring tribe, knowing what had happened, refused to allow the stone to even pass through their territory. They were even now at a standstill. And to make matters worse, a French archaeologist sent an Arab friend to just go make squeezes of the stone, right? I mean, think about this. The, the, it's tense. It's hot. I mean, once the false moves and one misunderstanding, you're talking about different language barriers, and now you're talking about a stone that could earn people a lot of money. And this French archaeologist just sends an Arab friend just to go make some squeezes. Remember that paper mache imp- impression? So it's just, just go. At first, the friend, um, I, th- I believe his name was... Caravaca, his name Caravaca was allowed to make some of the squeezes. But before he finished and dried, um, violence exploded. It's actually said that Caravaca suffered a spear wound to the face. Now that's some determination right there. Needing to to survive, Caravaca's companion actually pulled the still wet squeeze in which ripped into seven pieces, and they just said, skirt, we're out of here. He just bundled it up in his pocket and they left. Afterwards, the locals actually broke the stone into a hundred different fragments. Sounds like the end of the story. But through some luck and some determination, that French man who got his friend into some serious trouble was actually able to purchase enough of the fragments from the locals to recreate the stones with the squeezes that actually worked. And what made this stone so incredible to begin with for so much toil and violence and money? Well, as we know now, the writing was Canaanite Paleo-Hebrew from the 9th century BC. Again, from the 1800s, uh, 1800s to 800s BC. More exciting is that it actually recounted the events from a passage in the third chapter of book in the third chapter of Second Kings. The passage itself says, "Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay tribute to the king of Israel, a tribute of a hundred thousand rams." Side note: That's a lot of rams right there. This stone that they just found, that's called the Moabite stone, spoke of this very event and even included such details as Mesha being both a king and a, she- and a sheep herder. How crazy is that? It is now known as, I mentioned, the Moabite stone, which now currently stands in the Louvre Museum. By the way, I was in the Louvre Museum museum, museum like years ago, and I had no idea about this, which now is like one of my greatest regrets of... I was so bored in that museum, to be honest with you, because I thought I thought the, the Louvre Museum was just all paintings, and I was I saw the Mona Lisa. It was like tiny, by the way. I was just like, really? Is that that's the whole fuss about the Mona Lisa? Like, no big deal. Hey, my respects to the painting. Um, but I had no idea that this archaeological discovery was in that museum. I can't believe it. And actually, it can still be seen there today, where it remain it reminds or remains the longest inscription referring to the Kingdom of Israel ever discovered. Discovery number four. After the landmark discoveries of the Black Obelisk, if you remember talking about Jehu the son of Amri, and the Moabite stone, anything seemed possible at this point. If we could know that the distant 9th century BC, the Moabites and the Assyrians each had recorded their dealings with Israel, I mean, who knew how far back records of the Israelites might extend? For the discovery, we owe it to the father of Egyptology. Sir William Matthew Flinders. We'll call him Flindy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We'll call him Mr. Flinders or Sir Flinders. He was by far the most well-known of his time in the field of archaeology. Also, the pioneer of the method called stratigraphic archaeology, which was a more delicate and precise way to dig from 
you know, as opposed to just good old fashioned treasure hunting of like, let's get the bulldozer going. Okay, this was back in the 1800s, but man, they just they just went at, at it at the sun, at the sand. So he developed a more safe uh, procedure for everyone involved, and it's actually even used to this day. So in 1896, Flinders was doing what Flinders just did, you know, casually discovering ancient artifacts. I mean, you know, no big deal, small flex. What'd you do on Monday? I just discovered an ancient artifact, you know, dating, you know, 1800 years. No big deal. What about you? Well, I couldn't decide whether what cereal I wanted. So this is what Flinders did. At that time, he was in Thebes, the ancient city of Thebes, and he discovered a statue of an Egyptian pharaoh called Mernapta. After that discovery, he actually uncovered a rather obscure blast granite steel, which was, um, it was actually the longest and tallest steel that has ever been discovered, about 10 feet in height. And he noticed some inscriptions on it that was common to steels, meaning a German Jewish uh, philologist, which by the way, I had to Google what philologist meant, but it's basically an expert in, in linguistics. So thankfully he was there handy to help translate it. And it's common for steels and these kind of um, recountings of history to retell the many victories of said pharaoh. So in this case, it was the pharaoh, I believe his name was Mernapta. Yeah. So it was just recounting his victories. And that's exactly what this steel did. You know, it was expected. And it talked about Egypt's, um, the Egyptians' victories over the sea people. But near the end, it began to read this, quote, Canaan is despoiled with every evil treatment. Wait a second. Canaan? Was it? Isn't that in the Bible? Like, no mention of the Canaanites have ever been seen outside of the Bible up to that point. But there it was. Yet here was evidence of them. On the steel that was in the 13th century BC, 13th century, now we're talking about 1200 BC, on an Egyptian steel confirming the biblical account. But it gets better. The, the inscription went on to say, quote, Ashkelon was captured. Gezer has been taken. Yonam has been destroyed. Then the line following made the two men very curious. It says, Israel is wasted. Its seed is not. Uh, what is it? Israel? You're talking about 13th century B.C.? on this Egyptian steel, and here comes not only the Canaanites, but now Israel. It, they couldn't believe it. They're like, Israel's now mentioned on an Egyptian steel that, that dates as far as back as 1200 BC? Wow. This is not made up. And this is definitely not a fairy tale. Okay, quick pause. You keeping up with me so far? Just like the last episode, it's a bit long, so I apologize. But... It's going to be good. We're just getting to the top of the roller coaster. Remember, it's just seven discoveries. We're going to discovery number five, numero cinco. Here we go. Now, it's interesting about archaeology is that it doesn't just deal with old stones. It also finds ancient artifacts and writings as well. So much of what we know now has to do with ancient historians writing about what they saw. But what's interesting is most of the writings of ancient historians, their originals have been lost, well, to history. We have copies of the originals, which are called manuscripts, usually written hundreds of years after the originals. Like, here's an example. The famous Julius Caesar wrote a chronicle um, of his military success in the ancient, in the ancient uh, city of 
I think it was Kalu or something. He, he titled he titled it the Gallic War during the first century BC. That's when it happened. But the oldest copy we have of it so far is in the eighth century AD. We're talking about some nine hundred years later. I mean, did you hear that? Nine hundred years later. And for many other historians, it can range from 1,300 to 1,500 years later after the original. Yet, obviously, we still consider them legit because even though they're so far removed from the events, because there are many ways to corroborate their claims. But that's a long time. When it comes to the Bible, you find an incredible high amount of skepticism. Even some claiming that the Bible has been changed throughout the times and throughout history, and we don't have what, what was first written. Where this is where discovery number five decenerates this theory once and for all. It happened in 1947 when a clumsy 12-year-old shepherd boy went looking for his lost sheep along the cliffs overlooking the Dead Sea. Now, what's interesting is the cliffs are riddled with small caves. I mean, the chances of finding a cave was obviously very high. And doing what boys do, he flung a rock inside one of the caves. Honestly, I, I would have obviously done that. Just to hear the echo. I don't know, hear rock hitting against rock. But that's not what he heard. He actually heard the sound of crashing pottery. As any boy would, he went to investigate the sound. He actually found a bunch of old-looking pottery, and after opening one of them, he noticed they were filled with scrolls. We now know that this was one of 11 caves that are filled with ancient jars and scrolls that had been untouched for 2,000 years. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most significantly is that among these scrolls, we miraculously have something preserved of manuscripts of the Old Testament. In fact, no less than 37 out of the 39 books of the Old Testament are represented in those scrolls. It was finally time to put to rest this question of whether the Bible had been changed over the centuries, right? We finally had something that was over 2,000 years old. So if we're going to compare something, the time is now. The answer was a huge blow to the skeptics. The ancient Hebrew scriptures had been copied with a perfectly extraordinary faithfulness over the centuries. I mean, among the oldest scrolls were copies of the book of Isaiah dating to the 4th century BC, meaning they were only two to 300 years removed from Isaiah himself. Two to 300 years. Remember Julius Caesar, 900 years later? This is only 200 to 300 years. The only differences were Grammar points, like periods of comma, so to speak. But no words changed and no letters changed. This also affects the way we look at prophecies because scholars and skeptic scholars claim that the entire Old Testament was made up. So all the prophecies that supposedly came true, well, of course it came true because it's all made up to begin with, right? The prophecies were just kind of filled in there. But with this discovery, it proves that these ancient prophecies were written, in, fa in fact, hundreds of years before their fulfillment, making them legitimate. One dramatic example is Psalm 22, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, and it depicts the details of his crucifixion. Another blow to skepticism. Discovery number six. In 2015, there was a seal form that was discovered that was dated to about 700 BC and discovered in Jerusalem, bearing the inscription, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Pretty incredible stuff. I mean, that's just a discovery itself. Yet this wasn't the most discovery, those most amazing discovery from Hezekiah. We actually first discover evidence of him in 1830 when Colonel Robert Taylor finds a, a very 
interesting large prism, hexagonal and object of red baked clay in Nineveh. I mean, man, these people, what do they do with their lives? But here they go, just finding more things. It actually took years to translate as the code, well, you guessed it was cuneiform, yeah, cuneiform. The code wasn't broken yet, but once it was, it read this. As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his 40 fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taking into battleground with battering ramps. I took as plunder 200,000 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His towns, which I captured, gave and I gave to the kings of Ashad, Ekron, and Gaza. Whoa, that's the most detailed we've ever seen out of a steel. This was actually King Sennacherib of Assyria, boasting about his victories against King Hezekiah of Israel. Yet he never says he conquered Jerusalem. But how come? I mean, gosh, you're talking about the Assyrians at this point. How did Hezekiah survive the siege from such a powerful nation? Well, in his time, the main source of water came from Gion, the Gion Spring, which also irrigated the Kindron Valley. It was just outside the city walls. In preparation for the siege, he strengthened his walls, but also had to do something about that spring because it would have given unlimited water to the Assyrians, which would have made their siege indefinite. So what did he do? He diverted the water, cutting, it, cutting the access from the Kindron Valley. Again, we have two sources, one from an Assyrian himself talking about the siege, and now we read 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, that says this, Now the rest of, of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, in how he made a pool in a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? I had previously, he was the king of Israel, but correction is the king of Judah. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 2 through 4, gives us even more details. When Hezekiah saw that the Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he says he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus, many people gathered together to stop all the springs and the brooks that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Are you getting, I hope I'm explaining this right, and we're about to wrap up the episode pretty soon, so don't worry about it. But here's more discoveries from the Bible and from Assyrian testimony. How did he divert the water? Well, it wasn't until 1880 that we found out that it was through uh, what's called the Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's actually an inscription that some teenager unwittingly just stumbled upon. As a result of that discovery, we now understand that Hezekiah's ingenious plan from keeping the waters was actually just to build and, and actually carve his way through the living rock, creating a tunnel of more than 600, I believe it was 600 yards. Yeah, and you can see that tunnel even today. It goes from the Gion Spring all the way to the Pool of Siloam. Discovery number seven. The final discovery might be the smallest of them all, but I think it has the greatest significance. 
it seems that God uses the most unusual people because, yeah, you guess it, it's another kid that discovers it. First, the kid, uh, the shepherd boy, then this other kid that's, you know, discovered the inscription of the Hezekiah's tunnel. Now this kid. In 1979, Gabriel Berkey was having trouble having this archaeological investigation funded. He was trying to dig up some graves that had been looted such a long time ago that the Tel Aviv University wouldn't give him any money or students to excavate these burial chambers. But the Society of Protection of Nature offered a budget plus some 12 to 13-year-olds that were part of a local archaeological club. I mean, honestly, think of Russell from Up, right? Sir, sir, we're ready to help. Here we go. Like, that's basically what who they were. As the work began, I mean, gosh, you can imagine how helpful these kids were. They weren't. And actually, Barclay found one of these kids, probably his name was Russell, actually. His real name was Nathan, but let's just call him Russell, to be extremely annoying. So he just sent him off to work somewhere else. Hey, just go clean up chamber five. Just don't, just don't do dumb. Russell had just one job, clean it up. But being Russell, he snuck, he snuck with him a hammer. And when he was bored, he started smashing the stone under the chamber. Only to find out it wasn't very solid. Russell actually discovered another chamber behind, under that one with 150 objects of silver and 160 semi-precious stones and a bunch of other things. Now the nearby universities offered their students to help. Hmm, how convenient. At some point, they finally discovered a strange-looking object, which the leader um, described as purplish color. Obviously, an infinity stone. I mean... We all know that, obviously. But actually, it wasn't an infinity stone. Surprise, surprise. But it was an impossibly tiny pair of scrolls made of purest silver. He noticed so many letters on it, the divine name, he actually, the name that we say, Yahweh. And once they were able to safely unscroll this familiar passage, it was the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. That says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It wasn't until 2004 that when we had the the required technology that we were able to date this discovery to even years before the latest discovery so far, all the way to 650 BC, just before Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem. This pushed back the known existence of the Bible text several centuries. So what happened? Was this accepted? Of course it was. It's just another blow to the skeptics and another blow to that theory that somehow this whole thing was invented by monks in the, you know, in the medieval times. Come on, guys. Really? These are just but a few of hundreds of discoveries. Of course, this is one of the longest episodes I've recorded myself. And this was only seven things. But I just mentioned a few of hundreds of discoveries that have confirmed the historicity of the Bible. I haven't even said anything about the New Testament at this point, the discovery of Sodom and Gomorrah, the discovery of Jesus' hometown. I mean, so much more that obviously deserves, you know, a different episode. But here's the thing. Hasn't the Bible been changed over through all the years? I mean, hasn't the Bible been changed over and over through all the years? Isn't it full of legends, made up stories about people that never really existed, of events that never really happened? I mean, isn't it just a fairy tale? Well, think again. As our archaeological father, as you, you might be able to call him, Robbie Dr. Nelson Gluick, he said this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever 
controverted a biblical reference. So through archaeology, the Bible has been confirmed to be one of the most reliable works of history. We'll see you in the next episode of The Andrew Amash Show.